so today is the day where it finally happens. Haman is killed. You've been waiting for it. Have you ever seen a movie, you know, multiple times, and there's that one character in the movie that just grates on your nerves, and when that character in the movie is finally killed, imprisoned, kidnapped, whatever, you just have this feeling of satisfaction? If you know the story of Esther, maybe you knew it before we preached through it, this is how you should feel about Haman. He is such a jerk. And this is the moment where God's justice finally rains down on Haman. So by the end of Esther 7 today, if you don't have that feeling towards Haman, you certainly will. But Haman's death alone will not spare God's people from their destruction. Because the edict that the king made chapters earlier is not only in effect if Haman is alive or dead. So we'll have to wait a little bit longer in the story of Esther before we fully see how God will deliver his people. But our story today is certainly a good start to God intervening on behalf of his people. Remember we said last week in Esther 6 that the whole narrative changes when it says that the king was not able to sleep. And so from that moment, there's a whole chain of events that has taken place where God is going to intervene on behalf of his people. And so we argued last week that because God was faithful to his covenant people, he can use the most insignificant details of our lives for our good and his glory. That's Esther 6. But in Esther 7, I'm going to argue that because God is faithful to his covenant people, evil will not ultimately prevail. So in Esther 7, because God is faithful to his covenant people, evil will not ultimately prevail. And this is demonstrated through this text. Number one, through Esther's feast. Number two, the king's wrath. And then number three, Haman's death. So Esther's feast, the king's wrath, and Haman's death. Number one, Esther's feast. There is a lot of feasts and parties and banquets taking place in the book of Esther. From the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 5, the king gives a feast for all in Susa. Chapter 1, verse 9, Queen Vashti gave a feast for the women in the palace. Chapter 2, verse 18, the king gives a feast for the officials and servants when Esther becomes queen. Chapter 5, verse 5, Esther prepares a feast for Haman and the king. And now, chapter 7, verse 1, she prepares yet another feast for Haman and the king. Each feast given in the narrative pushes the story of Esther further along. Apparently, the Persian government spent a large portion of money on food and wine for the king and his friends. Now, I've heard that the President of the United States has his own dessert kind of pastry cart, which I think is awesome. But in Persia, they spent far more money to ensure that the king and all of his subjects and his officials were constantly fat, drunk, and happy. This is what the Persian government spent their resources on. The price of groceries was no obstacle. If you think about it, many important events in our lives revolve around big meals, rehearsal dinners, wedding receptions, birthdays, 
retirement parties. Have you ever shown up to a party without food before? And if you have, do you remember how incredibly disappointed you were when you showed up to the party without food? Perhaps that's just me. But if I'm being invited somewhere, I want a spread. And that's what was going on with Ahasuerus and all of his royal officials. And the text tells us, the second day after the feast, as the king is drinking wine, he asks Esther the same question that he had asked her previously in chapter 5, verse 3. Let me get there. Here's what he said. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. That's in chapter 5, verse 3. He repeats the exact same phrase in Esther 7, verse 2. He's going to give the queen in this moment whatever it is she wants, even up to half of his kingdom. Think for a moment about how enticing this offer would have been for Esther to act in her own self-interest. Even though she has already told Mordecai, look, when I get the opportunity to go before the king, I'm going to ask him to spare my people. But in the actual moment, when the king says, I'm going to give you anything you want up to half my kingdom, would Esther remain faithful to the promise that she made earlier in chapter 4, verse 16, when she said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The good news is, Esther does remain faithful to the promise she gave to Mordecai. She was willing even to put her life on the line for the nation of Israel. Now in verse 4, she goes on to recount the plan that Haman had constructed earlier in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Let me remind you of what this plan was. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So this is the plan that Haman had constructed. This is now the plan that Esther will reveal to King Hazarus about what might happen to the Jewish people unless the king changes his mind. When you see Esther here in chapter 7, it is another instance where Esther is pointing us to Jesus. Because in this moment in Esther, she is pleading for a people that have been sold. But Jesus pleads for a people that were not only sold, but enslaved 
to sin. Esther reveals, even in this text, that had they simply been sold into slavery, she would have been quiet. But she speaks up because death is on the line. The death of the Israelites, by the way, even if it would have happened in Esther, would have only been a physical death. And while Esther is certainly a hero in this story, she points us to a greater hero. Because if Jesus had not died for his people, not only would they experience a physical death, but more importantly, they would experience a spiritual death. Jesus is the greater Esther. Esther could only provide a spirit or physical way out of death. But Jesus provides a spiritual way to avoid death. Esther could only give the Israelites freedom from physical annihilation. Jesus offers freedom from spiritual annihilation. You know this to be true, that our culture today is far more afraid of physical death than they are of spiritual death. There's actually a phobia. It's called thanatophobia, which comes from the Greek word meaning death. The fear of death. Death causes people to have major anxiety. They fear separation from family and friends, wealth and hobbies. But many people don't ever think about spiritual death. An eternal hell, by many in our world today, is viewed as a myth rather than a reality. So we must warn people of God's coming judgment. When we approach texts like Esther, we don't just keep it in Esther. We take them to the one, Jesus, who can actually save them from a spiritual death. The wrath of God will be poured out on all people who do not repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. So don't leave today impressed ultimately with Esther. Leave today impressed and ready to worship Jesus as the one who spares all of those who repent of their sin and place their faith in him from a spiritual death, which is far more significant than any physical death anyone will ever experience. So not only do we see this feast that she brings before the king in Haman, we also see in this passage the king's wrath. After Esther tells the king what has been planned, he is outraged. But the irony of his outrage is that he should ultimately be mad at himself. Because it was Ahasuerus who gave the signet ring to Haman to put into effect the edict which would ultimately annihilate God's people. Haman's plan only remained an idea until the king passed off his signet ring. So, the question is, why does Esther come in here in chapter 7 and throw all the blame on Haman when the king is partially responsible? And the answer is, because she's not an idiot. 
Had she thrown the whole blame on the king, she would have been cast out of his presence and never able to be able to explain what it was that was going on. So she cast the blame on Haman, whom the text tells us in verse 6 is now terrified. Not only is he terrified before the king, but he's now terrified before Esther. There's a power dynamic that has taken place here. It's been all about Ahasuerus and Haman up to this point. And now Haman is horrified because he knows that the queen can convince Ahasuerus to do in this moment whatever it is she wants him to do. So the king, we're told, exits the scene at this point and he goes into the palace garden. Now, the narrative does not communicate this to us overtly, but we all know that one of the reasons the king has to leave and go to the palace garden is because he's got to figure out what he's going to do. Because if he punishes Haman, he's basically punishing himself, and the king's honor would be threatened. We know that in this context, honor is everything to the king. So he needed some time on his own to figure out how he's going to get out of this mess that he has created. On the other hand, Haman stays back. And he begins pleading with Esther for his life. And he knew that if his life was going to be spared, it was not just going to be because the king allowed it, but because Esther allowed it also. She would ultimately be the one who would determine the fate of Haman. The only one in this passage who can intercede for Haman and all of his wickedness at this point in the story is Esther herself. And guess what Esther does? She does not intercede for Haman. In verse 8, the king figures out a way to save his honor. So he enters back into the picture after leaving the palace garden. And when he returns back, the text tells us that Haman is dangerously close to Esther. What the text doesn't tell us, which you have to read commentaries to figure out, is that men were only allowed to be so close to women inside the king's harem. In fact, it was seven steps, according to Persian law, And the fact that Haman falls down or spills onto the couch where Esther is reclining is proof that Haman has violated this law. And it happens at the precise moment that the king returns from the palace garden. Now, a lot of assumptions can be made at this point. One could assume that Haman was trying to violate Esther or... He was simply begging for his life. I think he was simply just begging for his life. But Ahasuerus takes this begging of his life, knows the law, and uses that as an opportunity to rightfully execute judgment on Haman. Not for the plan against the Jewish people, but for being within seven steps of the queen. Now, Haman has committed treason. He has not just violated any woman in the harem. He has 
violated the queen herself. So now the king's wrath can justly, while preserving the king's honor, be poured out against Haman. And the wrath of King Ahasuerus in this passage should make us consider the greater wrath of God. God's wrath is far more serious and heavier than the wrath of Ahasuerus that we find in this passage. And many people are uncomfortable discussing the wrath of God. But if we're going to be faithful to the totality of Scripture, we cannot avoid this subject of God's wrath. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I read a book recently called Plugged In by an author named Daniel Strange, and he gives this beautiful and terrifying description of God's wrath. So picture this image. He says, imagine a big canvas stretched out to give shelter to those underneath. Over time, gallons and gallons of water are poured onto this sheet, and it starts to collect. It gets heavier and heavier, and the sheet slowly starts to sag under the weight of all that water. Those underneath think everything is okay. There's no problem. They just roll over and go back to sleep. But in reality, there's a huge problem. As that sheet gets heavier and heavier, and the water keeps on collecting, then comes that awful moment when the whole thing comes crashing in. The day of God's wrath will be that cosmic crashing in. But in the meantime, he goes on to say in this book, we actually also experience God's wrath now. He says, it's as if God has taken out a penknife and has cut a little slit in the canvas and small drops of wrath are falling down below. And these drops of wrath can be as simple as you stubbing your toe or a broken phone, but as serious as a dysfunctional family or a terrible disease. And these drops of wrath are intentional on God's part. They are gracious warning signs from God to point you to his mercy and his grace. To remind you that this is not the way God designed life to be. Christians, never forget that we only have one mediator. And his name is Jesus. Our sinful, corrupt, wicked hearts can only be redeemed through Jesus stepping up in our place for our sins. For those not in Christ today, Jesus is the only hope you have to be reconciled to a holy God. Without Jesus, the wrath of God is inevitable for you. Without Esther, the wrath of the king is inevitable for Haman. The king's wrath in Esther will be exercised for this injustice 
And God's wrath and God's judgment will be exercised against sin. And Jesus is the only hope for any of us. So what an opportunity, Christians, we have to speak gospel truth into these drops of wrath moments that everybody on the face of the earth experiences. Your neighbor's son or grandchild that has been diagnosed with cancer. It is an opportunity for you to intercede on their behalf and pray for that loved one, but also communicate the reality that the reason disease exists is because of sin. God designed us to live in perfect harmony with him. Free of pain, free of disease, and yet from Genesis 3 on, Sin has entered into the picture. So every drop of wrath moment is God reminding us that before the foundation of the world, he had a plan to send his son Jesus to actually take on the full measure of God's wrath against sin. And why did Jesus experience that wrath? Why did he undergo that wrath? Because he loves humanity. So when you see the wrath of the king in Esther 7, it should remind you of the king of kings whose ultimate wrath will be poured out upon sinners. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus intercedes and he's ready and willing to step up and take on our sin in our place because of his love for us. Number three, we see Haman's death. This is the moment. You have this feeling of satisfaction now. Haman is a goner. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. There's another great reversal in Esther taking place here. The gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai at the end of Esther 5 will now be used on Haman himself rather than on Mordecai. And it is only after the death of Haman, the text tells us, that the wrath of the king was abated. You see, Haman had to pay the price for his sins. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is willing and ready to pay the price. Not for his sins, but for our sins. He was sinless, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. And when he pays the price for our sin, guess what happens? In the same way the king's wrath is abated in Esther 7, God's wrath is abated against us through Jesus' death. 
Instead of us being hung for our transgressions, Jesus was hung on a wooden cross, which, by the way, would have come from a tree that his heavenly Father created. That's how much God loves us. Evil Haman constructs the gallows for a righteous Mordecai. But in the gospel, a righteous God sends his righteous son to die for an unholy and unrighteous people. Never forget that as you read the story of Esther, you are not most like Esther. You are not most like Mordecai. You are most like Haman. A sinner. Dead to sin and trespasses. And without a mediator interceding on your behalf before the king of kings, you also will experience the full wrath of God. Apart from Jesus serving as our advocate before the ultimate king, God himself, our fate would be no different from what we read here in Esther 7. In fact, it would be much, much worse. So praise God. For Esther, who was willing to throw herself before the king to advocate for her people. But her example should lead us to bow down and worship the one who throws himself before his heavenly father to advocate and plead for his chosen people. Christians, we praise and worship God our creator for his sovereign plan to send Jesus, to save us from our sin. And because of that, evil ultimately does not prevail. The war is over. Battles are fought daily against the enemy. As Paul tells us, we wage war against him. But we know that because of the death of Christ and his resurrection, evil does not win. Non-Christian in the room, watching at home, there is no one else who can advocate for you on behalf of a holy God than Jesus himself. There is no other person who can stand in your place to reconcile you to a holy God. Repent of your sin today. Turn to Christ. And when the day of God's wrath comes crashing down upon humanity, you can rest in joy and peace knowing that your Savior Jesus endured the wrath of God on your behalf because of his love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see the story of Esther in this passage, we are reminded of an even greater Esther, your son Jesus, who stood in our place and became our advocate. And because of that, your wrath against sin in us has been abated in the same way that Ahasuerus' wrath went away when Haman was hung upon the gallows. So we rejoice today for the truth of the gospel the good news that you love sinners and that you have provided a way for us to be made right with you. And if any are present here today, unsure of their salvation, give them the courage and boldness 
to approach someone today and have that conversation. And for those of us who remain, we will continue to plead the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be in right relationship with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.